Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com Serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Kraken Podcast, Phil. Today's audio is Connor Doherty with Alan Derning, The Fight for Housing in America. This event was Tuesday, February 25th, 2020 at the Forum in Seattle. Further support for the Bystander Podcast is done by Sound Reaper Graphics and BI Hoops. Please enjoy today's audio. Thanks, everybody. I'm Alan. It's that bright. was terrible. Let's welcome Connor more properly by saying, hi, Connor. Oh. Ah, so I have a little bit of a cold. Um, I do not have coronavirus. However, if I do, it's not that bad. It's, it's a little cough. It's a little cough, and some Ricola will clear it right up. You guys, we get, to, we get to listen to Connor talk a little bit tonight about an amazing book that he's written, and I highly recommend it. Um, I've written a lot of stuff about housing, and when I read this, I felt um, both completely thrilled and also in, completely intimidated, like, why should I bother to write another sentence on the topic when he writes sentences like this on page 234? There's the, a lot of naughty words in that book, so please don't. <laughs> The urban left has a particular skill at finding new and creative ways of eating itself. 
They so do. anyway, if, his, if, we, if he loses his voice, we'll just read aloud from the book. We'll take turns. We'll pass it among <laughs> ourselves. It's an amazing book. In, in the spring of 2013, I had a, a phone call um, from someone who at the time was at the Wall Street Journal um, asking and questions. And living in New York at that time. Yeah. And asking some questions about um, accessory dwelling units. Um, Backyard cottages, we, we, you know, we call them here. And, and of course, since then, Seattle has gone through a huge fight over accessory dwelling units and legalizing them on all our single-family lots, which we did this past summer, finally. Um, yes, that is, that is an applause line, thank you. Um, at the time, it was not even an issue in the Northwest. And Connor had, had um, uh, he called me up because he was about to go to Vancouver, BC to look at how they've done accessory dwelling units. So since that time, we have spent, I don't know, 50 or 100 hours on the phone talking about all kinds of things. This is the first time I've actually been in the same room as Connor at the same time, not talking on the phone. And the amazing thing is, every time before now, he's been asking me questions. <laughs> he has a voracious mind, and he's just pulling everything he can out of my head. I always feel exhausted. So tonight, we get to, we get to turn the tables on him, and I, got to, I get to ask him questions about this amazing book. So... For those of, those, of, uh, those of the members of our audience who have not um, had a chance to read the excerpt in the New York Times or page through the book or uh, if you haven't, if, who haven't already read it or read your other work on the topic, let's begin with a basic exposition. <coughs> what is this book about? What's the basic argument? So I'll just start by saying, uh, if I recall the way the conversation went, I called you and you told me to go to Vancouver. Was that right? Yes. And, and actually, this is relevant to some of the themes we'll talk about tonight. But I said to him, eh, I don't want to write about policy. I don't want to write about this stupid paper you did. I mean, that can be filler. That can be filler. That can be part of it. But I want to go see a neighborhood where, like, is there anywhere I can go where you can just look and see a bunch of ADUs or accessory dwelling units? And he said, well, you could go to Vancouver. So I went there. And the reason that's important is that's how I approach all my work. Like, if I can't see it happening or talk to people or get a sense of how it really plays out, it's not to say I'll never write a story about a paper, but it's just to say, like, 98% of the time I'm not. So I feel like when you... The reason, if I ask the question how this book happened, uh, at a very large level, if you think about what it means to live in, like, a rich country... And by rich country, I mean a country where we define ourselves by a standard of living that a large number of people can attain, whether you call that the median or however you want to put it out there. Um, When we think about America being the richest country in the world, we have always, for many, many decades, symbolized that with housing. Richard Nixon famously went to Moscow when he was vice president. And there was this this symposium in Russia, and he told, there was a six-room ranch house on display, and he told Nikita Khrushchev, you know, a steelworker could buy this. And nobody believed it. In fact, there had been all this propaganda that this was no more typical of Americans' homes than the Taj Mahal was a typical home in India. I think that line was literally in the the paper, Pravda or something, I don't know, you know. And, um, and... it wasn't bluster. That was true. You could do that then. So contrast that with today. That and that. So that's been our symbol of: Are we doing okay? Is this is this a country that is uh, its way is working? And then you contrast that with today in places like Seattle or where I live in Oakland, and housing is the symbol of 
of everything that's gone wrong, whether it's uh, homelessness. And it feels like we don't have six-room ranch houses and we're bragging about steel workers. It's like we're talking about the richest man in the world or homeless people, or we're talking about subsidized housing that we need to go to get a program for, which is important, or luxury condos. We're never talking about, oh, we are just kind of our economy and our way of life is just producing this good that a lot of people can get. And it's not to say that, just caveat, this is not to say that the 1950s was some wonderful time. Uh, there are all sorts of problems, but uh, and we're familiar with them, we can talk about them, but we did have a, a, a better accessibility to comfortable housing for more people. And so I guess my question was how all that went wrong. And that, that's, that's the primer of the book. Uh, that's, I feel like, what I'm trying to ask that question from as many different perspectives as possible. And then seeing people who are fighting against it, um, sometimes together, sometimes in opposition, sometimes one or the other, and, uh, and just sort of watching people confront this problem in the way they know how. All right, so let's get back to the book in just a second. But first, first let's talk about you. Uh-oh. What is your what is your personal housing story like? How, how, you know, um, next I'm going to ask you why why you wrote the book, but like, what's the backdrop of your own relationship to housing? Why you would care at all? Well, as my agent says, when I was selling the book, she said everybody has parents and a house. Uh, you know, ignore what your agent said. Tell yes, us exactly. No, so my own. So when I called, so I, I was looking up thinking about the first time we talked today. It was January 7th, 2013, or June something, 2013. So I moved to the Bay Area right after that, which is where I'm from. I grew up mostly in San Francisco, but then went to high school in Napa Valley. And my mom, uh, like a great many people are dealing with these days, had Alzheimer's, and it was getting sufficiently bad that it would be better for me to go home. So not many people think of San Francisco as the, like, sad sack farm town that you have to go home to because, you know, leaving New York, but that was sort of the way I was regarding it. Um, And so I went home, and I lived in the Mission District. Again, nobody thinks of it as, oh, this is, I have to live in this neighborhood because I want to be seven blocks from my parents, but that was how I was looking at it. Uh, So I was sort of an anomaly in the place at that time, but it in addition to you know this notion of coming home and beyond just the house, but the place and feeling like I had some responsibility there, um, uh, my mom could function pretty highly because she had this neighborhood she'd lived in since 1972, like imprinted on her brain. So even though her brain was failing her, she could walk to the coffee shop. I mean, we probably should have never allowed this, but but we did, and. Um, and she could go to the coffee shop and come back, and people, we knew people, they would like, kind of watch her. Um, sometimes she got her money, and they would just give her, and they would just tell us, like, come back, you know? So her quality of life and her independence and her sense of herself was so enhanced by her ability to stay in the neighborhood she grew up in. So when I see other people, you know, you hear stories of people getting pushed out of their neighborhoods. I mean, you can only imagine what kind of havoc that might wreak in ways that we haven't really thought through. And I'm probably doing too much with my hands right now. Sorry, I don't do like uh, public speaking that much. But um, and then on top of that, just my ability to be able to afford twenty eight hundred dollars rent, which is cheap then, uh, to be close to them. Which, if you think about it, so many people probably want to be close to their parents uh, and are like, oh, I can't. You know, in in the Bay Area or a place like that, and like I can't get there. So 
I was I was living I, everything was fine. I wasn't living a nightmare or anything like that. I, well, I was living a nightmare. It was a different kind of nightmare, not a housing nightmare. But um, but I was very conscious of wow, like it's so fortunate to be able to stay in the place that you know. It's fortunate to be able to afford to go back to the place to be near parents. And not a lot of people were doing that. So many people were leaving San Francisco at that time. So I was. That, I guess that's my story. Isn't it? All right, so, so tell us now, why did you write the book? What, was there a, particularly, was there a moment when, you, when, when, it went, uh, when this, became, this book became a reality in your mind? Um, so I'd been covering housing and, and stuff like that. There was a moment. Very, very rarely can I crystallize a moment, but I can in this case. Hmm. Um, I have covered housing for, um, for a long time, t- about 10 years. And I was aware, very aware that this notion that we don't build enough housing and we don't, and that cities were running out basically and creating much, many more jobs than housing, that this was a huge problem that people had been talking about for a long time, longer than I have been around. Uh, and so, but a lot of it was papers. It was, oh, you know, you'd be looking for a research paper, oh, economists say. And I, maybe I did write a couple of those stories, but they were all very boring and they all were phrased like economists say. I never felt like I could see someone who was really unhappy about this. You could write a story where you said, oh, you know, these people should be angry, but if they're not angry, you're kind of supplying that, and that doesn't really work as a story. Anyway, so I was talking to this guy, Jeremy Stoppelman, who is the co-founder and chief executive of Yelp, which everybody has on their phones, or at least some people do. And he had, we were talking about something else, and then somewhere in the course of the conversation, he told me he had given a bunch of money to an activist named Sonia Trous, who ran a group called the SF Bay Area Renters Federation, or SF Barf. And Jeremy is a very serious guy. He's not like one of these tech guys who's like, are we all living in a video game? Like, he's, he's like a serious... <laughs> he's not like one of those weird ones, you know what I mean? He's like, oh, I've got to work, you know? And I thought, this is odd. The, public, the, the founder of a publicly traded company and a pretty straight and narrow guy is giving money to this character. And she's a character. So I met Sonia, and she was like, wow, there's not enough housing. And said all the things in a very loud voice. And she would show up to city council meetings in like leggings and cowboy boots and tank tops and yell at people. And, uh, and I thought, wow, here's a wonderful vessel to illustrate these boring economics papers that I'm not getting far with. Um, and then I wrote one story for the New York Times about her and this kind of movement that had started coagulating around her. And it was all just an excuse to try to see something in action, you know, to see research, in a, in a, in a, to see how it plays out in the political arena. But then... Of course, this leads you to so many other questions. How are other people doing? How is housing? And so it just it started with that, but then it led to a million other stories. And this book is full of all these different people's stories. And it's over a period of years, so you see them change, and there's all these twists and turns. And you're never sure who's the villain, who's the nobody, you, you know, who's the villain, who's the hero. And I think sometimes you get to at the end of a chapter and you think something's going to happen, and the opposite things happen. And if you follow people around long enough, the stories that come out especially with something as fundamental as housing, they just kind of write themselves. They're, they're kind of magical. So I started with Sonia, and then I just followed all these other people. Uh, um, 
pause, we'll pause for station identification right now. So right. Sonia, Sonia is going to be in Portland in a couple of months, and Connor is as well at a conference on housing abundance that Sightline is one of the, the co-sponsors for. If you guys want to get on the list to learn about that and other housing-related themes, we will probably <coughs> circulate a sign-up sheet through the crowd this evening as the conversation continues. So if a clipboard arrives, that's what it's about. Um, I thought you were joking about the station identification thing. <laughs> no. I'm joking about most things, and, unless I'm not joking. Okay. You'll figure it out eventually, or maybe not. Um, so so, how, um, so the, the book is about this massively important set of policy questions um, that you know, bear on the future. As you explained the, in, the, in the really powerful introduction to the book, it, they bear on the future of the climate and on of our economy and of mobility and income inequality and racial segregation. All, all, like, um, I will not read another section, but really powerfully articulate all the issues that are at stake in, in these housing policy questions. But as you've just explained, you tell the whole thing through the stories of interesting people in the state of California. Um, did it make it easier or harder that you were trying to tell the stories through people? I think it made it easier. To, so in the introduction, I say essentially every major problem in America has some housing at its root. You know, mm -hmm. like you can't, you can't talk about education without asking how you can live near a fancy school district, and you can't talk about climate change without talking about how people go to work. Uh, anyway, so I don't, I don't think, I think it was, I think it was easier to, it's, well, it's harder in the sense that you have to spend a lot of time trying to find people and trying to make them comfortable with you and trying to report on them. And some, sometimes you get down the road with them and they don't, it doesn't work out. So there's all that messiness. So it, the actual labor part of it is quite hard. But once you start to kind of hit your rhythm and people have kind of accepted that you're going to be following them around and everything uh, and recording them and all these other things... Um, it is kind of a crazy-ass job being a reporter. Like, hey, can I just follow you around and record you as everything goes bad in your life? But, um, so, um, but I think people believe that there's some worth in it, and that's why they do it. So I was very... I thought it was really rewarding because you could get a lot of different perspectives into the book. And if you were to write it like as like an essay or something like that, it would look like you were always contradicting yourself. But if characters are kind of warring with each other, you can get all these different perspectives in without sounding like stupid, or hope, hopefully. Um, and um, so in that sense, I thought it was easier to tell a more complicated story and not have it seem complicated. Because each chapter is pretty simple, right? You have this person on a journey, and will they get what they want? But after you stack them up enough times, you kind of close the book and go, wow, this is, there's a lot going on, you know? So... I think in that sense, it made it, it was the only way I could tell the story. It felt like the only way I could do it justice was to give people and, and to show them an action and see what it's like for them, uh, lots of different people, and then that way the politics becomes more understandable. Because politics gets so intellectual, you know, like people go and either, they either have uh, a coalition that they're trying to satisfy or they're, they have some... Uh, uh, kind of ideological belief that's guiding them or some economics paper that they think is the all-knowing truth of everything. But people who are living an experience, that experience is informing how they 
push for things. And that's real. People aren't just like stupid. They aren't just like advocating for the wrong policies because like they're not as sufficiently educated as somebody else. It's that they have a lived experience that has compelled them to seek out something else. And so if you show them doing that, it will become pretty clear why they're doing that. And so I think, I think it made it much easier to tell the story that way. So uh, of the, the people that you, um, whose privacy you, you invaded uh, I've invaded and recorded, a lot of privacy. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. The people who, um, who invited you to follow them around, People whose stories that you told. I don't know, in this invite book. is quite the. Okay, <laughs> but yes, yes. The people who you reported on the book. Yeah. Okay. Think about all those people. They did invite at some point. Yes. Okay. Who did you write about who most influenced your own thinking? Hmm. So when we rehearsed this, you said, "Change your own thinking or influence." You know, but like no, I'm said, just who kidding. did you write about you who changed your own thinking? We didn't rehearse any of this. I'm yes, always talking exactly. About no. <laughs> Uh, no, so there was one character who, I'm just, we're having fun, right? Um, so there was one character, I really wanted, I, when I went into this, I thought to myself, I have to watch displacement up close. And I wanted to see what it's like to be displaced from the place you live, uh, and, and to see it from the very beginning to the very end, and then meet the people who move in after to do all of that in one unit. That was my, my goal. I didn't know if I would pull that off, but that was like a very... Uh, of all the things I did in the book, that was the one that was most like, this is what I want to see. And it wasn't because I... W- it was because I know this is happening constantly, so you think to yourself, okay, how will this look if I really just watch the whole thing? So I met... I went started hanging out at a community center in a Latino neighborhood of Silicon Valley called North Fair Oaks, which um, is an unincorporated area that very few people know about, but it's, um, it's right there, kind of above East Palo Alto and in near Menlo Park, right in the shadow of Facebook's expanding headquarters. Not like literally in the shadow, but about five miles away. And, um, and, I, and I started hanging out at this gym, which is called the Siena Center, and people would come in with their, oh my God, my rent's high, you know. And people would come in with these letters, these horrific family destroying letters that said, Hey, your rent's going up a thousand bucks. Hey, your rent's going up 800 bucks, you know? And finally I met this one building, uh, where these people came in from this one building and they had, rent had gone up $800 and they said, yeah, totally follow us. We want to, they were very, a lot of people were just a little shell shocked from it, but they were, they had decided from the very, they had formed a tenants union and they had decided as part of their collective process that, getting their story out was fundamental to their mission. So that's how I got them to let, let me invade them, their privacy. They had, I, th- I think it's important to say they had decided as a union that that was one of their objectives. Uh, anyway, so they were being led by this 15-year-old girl, Stephanie Gutierrez, who um, she had come home one day and just found a note taped to her door, her two-bedroom apartment, uh, and her mom. And it said, "You know, your rent is going up eight hundred dollars." And her mom, Stephanie, is a uh, is a she does elder care, and then she cleans houses in the middle of the day. Comes home, so she just takes care of someone in the morning. She cleans houses, to take care of the same person at night, and then she goes and moonlights at a uh, at a. Uh, office. So she's the person who takes care of your grandma, the person who cleans your house like under the table, and then the person who's emptying the trash as you're leaving the office. She's all those people in one day. 
And um, so her mom has no ability to organize a, you know, a, a building or anything. And so Stephanie does it all. Oh, man. Um, anyway, I didn't even do that last time, but this time it's kind of hit me. So, um, so Stephanie goes and or she's just a kid, right? She's 15, so she goes and organizes this building, and then uh, people are telling her how to be an organizer because she's not like experienced at this at all. And she organizes uh, another building because people tell keep telling her like, oh, the more people you have, the better off it will be. And she's like learning all this stuff, like, oh, the same landlord turned out the same landlord bought another building, and it, had been, it turned out it had been an estate sale. This family had died, and so they'd sold two buildings. So she organizes all these people, and then they have a bunch of protests, and there's this pretty devastating scene in the book, which, again, there are these scenes you encounter where you're like, oh, my God, is this real? And they were having a meeting, and they had a bunch of food. It was really nice food. It was like a quinoa dish with, like... And I asked the guy, where's this from? And he said, oh, there's a nonprofit that goes and gets food that isn't eaten at tech companies and will go and distribute it to people. Uh, it's not like off plates or anything. It's like the stuff that hasn't. Uh, and so they were eating like leftovers from, it turned out, a venture capital firm uh, as they were having this tenant meeting about this landlord who was raising the rent because he wanted to. Anyway, so it was, it was pretty crazy. So finally they got, uh, they I will fast forward and say that they got a crappy buyout deal, which is typically how these things work. They got $1,500 to leave. And she got really messed up by it. Um, and the thing, uh, this is where I started to lose it, but she was, um, she started to take on the other people. You know what I mean? Like, she was just like this kid, right? So, God, I didn't do this last time, sorry. Um, she was just like this kid, and so... And she didn't really know what she was getting into. Everything was, you know, just get more numbers, get more numbers. This is how you do this. But she started to feel like she was promising people, like, I can save you from this. But she, of course, had no ability to do that. And she felt like she'd let all these people down. But, I mean, she didn't really go into it with that. She went into it with, like, okay, more numbers, I'll get more numbers, right? And, and it's like all these adults. I mean, she's like the youngest person in all these rooms, and it, was, it really messed her up. So she missed a month of school. Um, she was all messed up. I can't imagine that she functioned well before those months uh, or after. And um, I think that that experience made me understand uh, just like the cost of it. Anyway. I did not do that before. I'm not like a crier. Uh, anyway, it made me realize like the cost. So you read these papers. What? Uh, I don't even think I cried at my wedding. So I feel like <laughs> like uh, no. And who's the, that interviewer who makes people cry? What's, your, what's that name? This is weird. This is not you me. Anyway, talk, so you know I'm talking about it made me realize that it's the me, cost. Connor, it's yes. me. It's the questions I ask. It's yeah. my presence that makes you cry. It made me realize that the cost is so high. And if you want to have, I mean, I, what happens to her schooling? Like, you only have a couple years to become educated, right? You know, yeah. unless you're a lifetime student, at which point everything's fine anyway. So, um, so, and, you know, what, we talk a lot about costs and what are the trade-offs of rent control and stuff like that. And you just ask yourself, like, the cumulative costs of that experience for her and a million other kids like her, I just don't see where that's calculated mm -hmm. in dollars. Like, 
what's the cost of having people who aren't educated properly because they're so screwed up at home, uh, or screwed up by this experience, and what's the cost? Of, and I just, anyway, so, and so I, as I followed other tenants and tenants' rights activists through other parts of the story, I just could sort of see, like, there's nothing you could really do to help her other than come up with a policy that says, like, that $800 rent increase does not happen. There's no, there's no nothing other than that you could do other than, like, a full triage. Now, I don't want to get, well, we could, in a separate argument, get into a big policy toolkit about it, but the, some policy, whether it's a direct subsidy or, or, or something like rent control, the only thing you could do to make that situation better is to just prevent that from happening. Yeah. Um, and so I, and I, I will admit, as an economics writer and stuff like that, I had a somewhat intellectual take on the... Sorry, man, am I going on? No, no, you're going good. You got me crying, man. Uh, anyway, no, uh, you know, that one really too. changed my mind because I saw how severe it was. And I did start to think about it beyond the, 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 the feelings notwithstanding, like what is the actual dollar cost of people not being educated, of people not, you know. Sure. I mean, there's all these other studies that show that if you give, that early childhood education is like one of the like highest returns on investment. Mm-hmm. Society. So mm-hmm. what's the opposite of that? Like that must be like similarly high, right? So I just right. started to think about it and it changed my mind about how expensive it is not to, uh, to allow things like that to continue. Hmm. Hmm. Sorry, guys. It was like, that, good. That took a long time. You should never so, apologize yeah. for okay. having emotion about about reality. Right? Me and Stephanie had pizza two Saturdays ago, and she's doing a lot better. So, well, right on. But it did take till like it's like three years later, and I yeah. I think she's like barely recovering now. So yeah. All right. So um, I hope you guys who hadn't already decided to buy the book. Just switched over to buy the book because this book is full of amazing stories like Stephanie and 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 Sonia and uh, they're hilarious and they're moving and they're powerful. So let's talk about another person um, in the book. Um, Who who in the book most surprised you in terms of um, in terms of what they did about housing, like what you were expecting and what they actually went ahead and did. So if you can't tell working with Stephanie and her family, and there was a whole other group of people with them, but I just focused on that one group. They changed me and how I felt. But there were other people in the book, uh, and so I guess in a sense that surprised me, but there were other people in the book, notably this guy, Steve Falk. How many people here read the excerpt? I don't feel like you're obligated to, but if you did. Quick plug, President Obama tweeted that excerpt, which was the weirdest thing in the world. But um, anyway, so this guy, Steve Falk, who is the city manager of Lafayette, California, he changed over the course of the story. And that's one of the cool things about following people over like three years is all sorts of things happen that you couldn't plan. Mm. So Steve Falk was the city manager, uh, was, this is part of the story, uh, the city manager of Lafayette, California, which is a Lovely, lovely suburb along a BART stop just kind of over the hill from Oakland. Uh, and um, it's two BART stops from my station in Rockridge. And, uh, and he was the city manager of Lafayette, has about 25,000 people. And this guy wanted to build a, 
I should note, this land had been zoned for high-density apartments for decades. Nobody really knew this. Steve did. But most of the town did not know this. So this, and they all, this guy was this old kind of crazy hermit guy who wrote anti-tax screeds to the local newspaper. And, and they just kind of were like, he's not going to do anything with it. Then he dies, and quickly a developer uh, partners up with his daughter, and they, 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 put, they put a proposal to put 315 apartments on this parcel. Most of the town thinks this is like open space. I should note, though, through their own community planning, it was zoned for 315 apartments, and somebody made that decision, so it's not as if, you know, I mean, anyway, so... So what happens is they have a big fight. They're fighting it like crazy. And then Steve tries to broker a negotiation to, to find the best middle way. And then they come up with a plan for 44 homes. Then Sonia comes along, sues them. Uh, they have to pay her money to at least write the lawsuit herself. Doesn't even have a lawyer. She like, I was like, how did you do that? And she was like, oh, I just copied and pasted a lawsuit and I just put my name here. But... <laughs> And she got it far enough for it to be that they had to pay her to go away. I don't know if it would have made it that much further, but they did have to pay her to go away. Um, like 100 grand, too. Or so. I mean, I don't know how much, but it was not nothing. Uh, and so... She sued them for, for trying to build apartments or for not building there is apartments? A, this gets highly complicated. But there is a law in California that says, like, if a developer proposes something, you can't just downzone it under them. You know, like, because a lot of cities, there's someone with like 315 apartments, and then the next day they're like, actually, the law now says you can only build four. That's illegal in California, and Sonia sued them over that. The hilarious, the extra hilarious part is the developer was on the city's side by then. So she essentially sued the developer on behalf of the developer. <laughs> it was insane. It was insane. Uh, so anyway, what happened is then the city had this referendum. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to bore you, but basically they had this referendum. The whole thing drags on for eight years. And by the end of it, he has become so exhausted by this process that he starts endorsing all these upzoning bills uh, that the state is pressing. And not just endorsing them, he's like writing city memos. He's going and putting them on the council agenda. And then they show up and are like, what the hell is this? You know, like, and... And then they have to have a public debate about it because once it's on the agenda, for weird legal reasons, they like, actually have to talk about it mm-hmm. briefly. And uh, they're like, no. And, um, and, and so eventually the, the citizens who do not like him, who have now formed a group called Save Lafayette, um, start figuring out how they can fire him and they start going after his severance packet. It just became this whole thing. And by the end, he quits in this like crazy show of frustration and it's like my conscience will not allow me to serve this city and its climate i mean it wasn't quite that bad but it basically was that bad and so he's just had this full conversion over the course of but the first time i called him he was complaining about this development and he was like it's ugly it's stucco you know like he he i mean he, i will, i should say he was never really in favor of that development but the process had so exhausted him that he stopped believing that the process could come up with something good. I think that at the beginning, he believed this community process will ultimately result in something better, which generally it does if it has a, f- a finite end to it. And, um, and he, had, he, had, he basically stopped believing that local government could solve big problems, and that was really hmm. crushing for him. Hmm. Uh, but 
Mm-hmm. It was fascinating to watch him. I mean, honestly, I went into the book wanting him to be kind of like the, the, the more suburban character. No, not the villain, but more the sympathetic suburban character. But then he went like full Yimby, which is like, yes, in my backyard. And I was like, Jesus, you're like ruining the narrative here. Like, <laughs> <coughs> it was a good story, but it made him a little out uh-huh. of character for where he was. All right. But, Let's, uh, all right, so um, if there's one thing you learned in studying, in studying the politics of housing in California that you want us in the Northwest to know, some tip or warning or advice or something, what would it be? What is the lesson? Uh, I don't know how far you guys are from this. You're probably pretty deep in it already, but not to let the politics get too toxic. Uh, we have... We, you know, I should say, San Francisco has had a bananas political culture for quite some time. Housing did not create this. Uh, it is full contact and always has been. And you go read old history books, I mean, people are doing crazy stuff. So, like, it's not, part of, partly it's part of the place, right? But I was in Minneapolis, which we all now know is like our national beacon of, of reasonableness. Um, uh, but, but I should say, I'm, uh, my wife's from Minneapolis. I considered my home for two weeks each summer. And, um, <laughs> and, and when you talk to people there, they, of course, will acknowledge. They're like, what are you talking about? We have all these problems. I'm, I mean, they don't think that about themselves. But there's this woman, Lisa Bender, who is the president of the city council. And she's kind of the, she would be probably called the Yimby person. I don't know. But she was part of the, the plan Minneapolis had to basically get rid of single-family zoning, but she's also like the hardcore, I'm not hardcore, but she's also has a tenant's bill of rights and is pushing that. It's significantly behind where it would be here, but they're pushing. And I think it's cool that the same, it doesn't have to be the same person, but that the same kind of ideology is tackling both these problems together because I think that's healthier. And in the Bay Area right now, it feels like those two ideas are in conflict with each other and they shouldn't be. And they're not, the God's honest truth is they aren't, it's just the people are. And that's kind of my point, is that the toxicity is forcing people to not, to basically dig into ideas even though on a purely ideological level they probably agree with each other more and that's where the toxicity Mm. ruins any kind of progress, Mm. in my feeling. Mm. So don't let that happen. well, we're, we're going to have questions soon. I, I think I have two, two more questions myself, okay. and then we're going to do Q&A. People may, have, may want to opine themselves about whether we already are beyond the pale on toxicity um, in the Seattle area. But, um, you can't be worse than us, so that you can always... Seattle and the Bay Area are kind of like terrible twins in this whole thing, but I still think you're the smaller of the terrible twins in terms All right. Um, I mean, by that, I mean less terrible. It's like a compliment. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things that one might say right now but I'm going to go to another question Um, what did you write in the book that you secretly think you might later regret having said you told me you were going to ask that one (laughs) 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 I got the mic now is there any is there so in other words is there something in there that you currently believe but you know you're aware that maybe you're mistaken Maybe time will prove you're, prove you're wrong. So, I will proudly say that there's probably a lot of things that will turn out to be wrong 
in the book. I don't think wrong like I'm some oracle, because that's not my job, right? And I feel like journalism is this amazing, wonderful thing, because you're committing yourself to documenting the present in all its warts and with all the uh, fallibility that endeavor has Hmm. associated with it. I don't write history. I don't get to go back and go, oh, it was so easy. Everybody, you know, this is what was happening. And the analyst, right? You're just, kind of, it's, it's, it's bananas. It's wild. It's, you don't really know what's happening. You're trying to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. That is a hard thing to do. And it's uh, inherently imperfect. Yeah. But I think it's a worthy thing to do because you know how uh, people can look back at it and say, that's what was going on at that time. And also, you can, you can try to make sense of people in their time and not try to make sense of them in retrospect or, or anything else, right? Yeah. So I think that probably... I will answer your question, but I think a lot of things could be wrong, and I think allowing yourself the... I'm not saying you like try to be wrong, but allowing yourself the freedom to just document the, presence, the present in all its imperfections... Uh, and in all your imperfections and not knowing what the hell is going on because you're in the moment, mm-hmm. that's, that's the gig, and I think it's a worthy gig. But if you start to lose yourself in this idea that you're going to predict the future, you will fail at the gig. Mm-hmm. And I think that even if you're technically wrong... So you will hear people sometimes say, journalists say, um, he was wrong, but he was wrong in interesting ways. And I think what that means is that that they were capturing something fundamental to that time. And even if the arc of what was happening turned out to be wrong, understanding, how, documenting that thing at that time, like accurately and, and in, in, with interesting analysis and whatnot mm-hmm. has value, even if it is wrong. Yeah. So I would say my one concern, well, I don't know. Is that a good enough answer? You know what the other answer is going to be. So, Well, I don't know. What do you guys think? Was that a good enough uh, answer? No. No? no? We, want, we want more. I, I worry, um, when I look back at history, I see that there were a lot of things, redevelopment most notably, that weren't as bad as they turned out. What I mean, I'm sorry, what I mean by that is they were not intended to be as bad as they turned out. If you go and you look at the original redevelopment programs that were passed, most of them were passed in 1945 after World War II. Um, they didn't get really get going until the 60s because they just basically didn't do anything for 20 years. And... Uh, and if you look at what they were thinking about in San Francisco, but I bet you here too, they had a lot of good plans, and they were not bad plans, and the people were on board with those plans. Then the suburbs happened, everything got messed up, and the plans that they actually executed were like clear out black neighborhoods. And um, but if you go, it's it's it was start. That's the story of redevelopment I know. But when I went back and read more about it, it was like that was not how it began. That was not like the original idea, and I think. What happened is that suddenly there's all these billions of dollars and civic energy behind this thing, and people like just didn't know how to stop. Uh, I mean, obviously there could have been community input and things like that, mm-hmm. you know. Shit, shit, they had 20 years, um, but I, I don't know if I can say that. But they had 20 years. Edit that out. But uh, <laughs> so, um, and I guess I just worry sometimes that when we get so deep into a hole we don't go slow anymore. And, I, and, and by, I don't mean slow, like we should go slow, but we don't go deliberately, like with a step each day, each week, mm-hmm. each month. Mm-hmm. And right now it feels like a lot of cities and states, California, are, are trying to come up with big plans. And 
I think we need big plans, but I worry, like if those big plans turn out to be the wrong plan, I mean, the little plans won't work right now, so we don't need little plans. The momentum behind them will be almost impossible to stop because once everyone gets going, they'll be so exhausted by process that they won't want to stop. And I just wish, I, when I look back at how badly certain things went, I just wish they could, that there was some mechanism for policy to course correct once it went down a path because there's, I mean, there's, in San Francisco, there's some amazing redevelopment projects. There are actually some, some good ones that you can point to. The International Longshore and Warehouse Union very deliberately took their pension funds and built this, uh, it's like famous in San Francisco, the St. Francis Square, and it was consciously desegregated, which in 1950, whatever, was like a big deal. It's still owned by the pension fund. It's still permanently affordable. Like, there was really great stuff that happened, but also really bad stuff that happened. And uh, so I just worry that, I worry that um, we're going to look back at this period and there will be a lot of big plans. This is, this, this, this is, please do not interpret this as we shouldn't have big plans. Mm. But I just hope they have some fail-safes worked into them in some way. I mean, mm. I can just look back at that period and go, nobody intended it to go that badly. Uh, but it did. And mm -hmm. so I, that scares the hell out of me that that could mm -hmm. be repeated. Hmm. Is that a good enough answer, guys? Yeah. Yeah, good job. Seattle, Seattle approves. Last question before we go to the audience. Okay. What will be the sequel to this book? So after I finished this book, I wanted to read a non-housing book. Uh, Sorry, a what? No, yeah, exactly. And because I'd read all these, some were good, some were just kind of, I was just like absorbing them. They weren't very good books, but they had good information in them. And so I read, I read a bunch of novels, and it was like you could see housing everywhere. I remember I, I started reading the Easy Rollins series when I, when I lived in LA, and I picked it back, I really liked it, and then I picked it back up. And it's like, I never, I kind of forgot, but Easy Rollins is like a landlord, and he's like got this whole empire he's trying to build. I was like, wait, I thought this was about like solving murder cases. But I was like, now I'm, oh my God, man. I just felt like I saw it everywhere. But anyway, then I read a book by my... <coughs> What's a novel? Sorry, you lost me back there. Oh, poor guy. Oh, come on. I liked this answer, too. We did it. No, no, go. Carry on. I'm just trying to... I read a book that maybe some of you have heard of called Ladies and Gentlemen, the Bronx is Burning. It was a TV series. Anybody uh, heard of it? It was a mini series on HBO. Great book. And this book has a in kind of a risky premise. It's all about New York in 1977, which, you know, a lot of people, you wouldn't think that many people would care about that. And it kind of juxtaposes the Yankees and the New York, and New York City at that time and kind of is just this kaleidoscopic, is what it says on the back of the book, which is accurate. Anyway, so there's 1977. When you hear about New York in 1977, it just sounds like, like an actual Batman movie. Like it's, it's like they have a blackout and all chaos reigns. Uh, the city's going broke half the time. Um, there is this son of Sam murder. People are spontaneously burning down uh, houses. Although I will say, we'll subplot the Bronx Co-op Project, which was kind of like the inspiration for Habitat for... It was quietly going on at the same time. But anyway. <laughs> and... You're reading this book, and you're thinking, like, how can this city possibly recover from this? You know, if you're reading it, because it reads almost like a novel, you're just like, this is impossible. They don't have any money. There's murderers running wild. The lights go off for, like, an hour, and everyone just starts stabbing each other. Um, 
It's like that Saturday Night Live skit where the lights go out and everyone starts, like, becomes a murderer. Um, and then, you know, you just think to yourself, this can't... I, I don't know how this is possible. It's, it does seem as bad as the New York Post made it seem. And, um, and, but we now know, in retrospect, this is like the moment when U.S. cities are just about to, quote-unquote, come back. New York... I guess you guys in Seattle had your, well, the last person who leaves Seattle to turn the lights off. You know, all, this was not a New York story. All cities in the 70s were having these tremendous, tremendous challenges. You read this book and you think there's no way they can recover. But, of course, we know this is like the beginning of the recovery. Exactly. And, and uh, I feel... Like, if we look back at this period in Seattle and San Francisco, uh, it will be 40 years from now, when hopefully I'm, let's say I'll be 82, so, um, ouch. Uh, the, uh, I hope that I have the energy to write a sequel, because I feel like when we look back, whatever we become, I'm confident we will see the embers of it in these cities in this period. Hmm. I don't know what that's going to be, I think it's up to us to create it because the embers will only make sense based on whatever happens after. But I'm highly confident that all the things we see in cities like this, these massive corporations that are accruing wealth on a level we've never contemplated, these incredible challenges of inequality and, um, and uh, you know, the homelessness, living next to insane wealth, um, the transportation challenges, you know, some of the left-on-left left challenges that we talked about, mm-hmm. political challenges. I think all that, whatever comes out of that, will kind of determine where we're going. Mm. And, and also, not to be too doom and gloom, the optimism, the ability that you can build these vast companies pretty quickly and that they can solve big challenges. And um, so I think that we will look back on this period however hellish it seems to us living through it right now, as the nucleus of something. And so as bad as it can sometimes seem, I mean, these cities are great, don't get me wrong, people live here for a reason, but as challenging as it can seem right now, I truly think we're living in one of the most, I mean, just think about these phones. I mean, human beings are not like the same. And we're living through one of the most interesting periods in the history of human beings. Uh, whatever thing people did with discovering animals and motors, like we're doing things that are that fundamental right now, and it's chaotic and weird, but it, it, we're in the nucleus of something that is so truly original in the course of all history, and we're sitting in the middle of it. So as challenging as it is, it's consequential, and the actions you take and the activism you engage in will matter and will have... Will have been in this very important period of time. So I think that the sequel will be me looking back and maybe figuring out everything I got wrong in the book, like you said, (laughs) but also seeing, wow, that period was so important. Cool. Was that a good answer? May you live in interesting times. Yeah. All right. We're going to take questions now. We have a microphone here. We have a microphone here. We'll go, we'll go back and forth, and let's start over here. Okay, uh, ground rules for the questions. The questions must include a question. <laughs> All right. 
please. What is your question? Hi. Thank you for coming tonight, and also thank you for Sightline. I quoted it a lot in my thesis. Um, I was really interested in the first story you told about sort of the personal cost of um, not having secure housing. And as I'm sure you know, Seattle is in a homelessness crisis. And you know, we, we're talking about housing, but let's not pretend that the end of the line for many people who aren't securely housed is homelessness. Um, I'm interested in sort of the flip side. You know, like what is the human cost? What is the human responsibility of people who may, at least for now, be securely housed in these cities that are experiencing this phenomenon? I'm sorry, say that again? You said what is the cost of? What's the responsibility of those of us who are securely housed knowing the human cost to people who aren't and to our society as a whole? You know, and, and kind of more, maybe more yeah. about your personal That is um, that. a question more profound than I think I am equipped to answer. It's, it's an amazing question, and it's a question that I have no, I almost want to know. It's not something I had thought about. I mean, I guess it's something I think about the same way we all think about when you walk by someone who makes you feel like you're failing your fellow human, and we all have gotten to a place where we... I wouldn't quite call it normal, but we will walk by scenes that disturb us and talk on our phone or whatever. And you're right, there must be a profound cost to that numbing. And I, would you like to share what you think it is? I'm serious. This is like heavy stuff. And I think that's an amazing question. And I don't want to be the dude who like fills up airtime when you're like blowing my mind right now. Well, I... I do personally think it's profoundly upsetting on a daily, day-to-day -day basis to be passing this sort of failure of our society every day on the streets and seeing the human cost of that. Um, I guess I was sort of hoping that um, there might be a takeaway here about you know advocacy and activism and getting really personal which I think seems to be the strength of your stories of bringing these mm. like, big things to a personal mm. level. Mm. Uh, no, I really appreciate that. Um, I, uh, I do go away, you know, meaning I... And I, I don't mean that like I just meant I go and I find people's stories and I tell them and then I go away and activists have to live with these things. And, you know, by the way, I did see uh, a number of the activists couldn't take it anymore in the... In the it was so hard... Uh, for them, uh, so I have nothing to say to you other than good luck and self-care because activism is rough and people live with these things and they do take them on almost for society uh, and, and you know I don't know what to say other than than that yeah, thank you that was heavy, that was awesome Please. thanks Connor for being here tonight um, you can so raise that up. You're tall, man. I honestly don't even know how. Okay, okay. There's a lot of knobs on here. Um, so I'll just bend over. So I have a two-part question. Part of it's local to you, California. Part of it's local here to Seattle. Um, you can't really talk about California real estate without talking about Prop 13 and, by extension, Prop 60, Prop, Prop 90, Prop 110, and the recently failed Prop 5. 
I know I can't talk about it without mentioning all of those problems. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, what? You sound like my TV in October. (laughs) (laughs) If you've ever lived in California, the ads are quite something. Now they just go, Bloomberg, Bloomberg, but... (laughs) (laughs) So I, I was in California for 2018 during the election cycle when there was... Um, an onslaught of, of measures that were proposing to spend incredible sums of money building housing. And I, I couldn't help but thinking, we're building all this housing and spending all this money with a fundamentally broken system that Prop 13 has created. So my question on the California side is, with something like Prop 13 in place and that whole system, is the solution to rip the Band-Aid off and dismantle the system, or do we need to go with an approach of um, slowly sunsetting these things so that we have a true market mechanism that makes the housing market healthy? So one of the things I learned doing this story isn't, uh, is that when you follow these things outside of the theoretical world, um, how they get done, and I mean, there might be some policymakers in the audience, like, it just doesn't work like that. So there is not right now some binary question, should we rip off the Band-Aid to something that two-thirds of Californians voted for uh, and still very heavily support, or should we gradually get rid of the thing that two-thirds of Californians voted for and still heavily support? I'm not saying it's good policy. I'm just saying those are facts. And I feel like Prop 13, I I hate Prop 13, I'll tell you why. Not because it's bad policy, although that, but it's like it so pulverizes the conversation that it almost leads to this like fatalism that nobody, listen to your question, right? Like nobody feels like anybody can do anything until this thing is gone. And I don't know how to handle it other than to just say, it's a kooky thing. It's something we have to live with. It's hard to argue that Californians are, on the whole, undertaxed. It's very easy to argue that they're stupidly taxed. And, it, and, it's, and obviously, California has these very strange land use incentives that basically create a jobs housing imbalance because of this. So it does do all these dumb things. Connor, could you could you yeah. pause? Sorry, proposition. Thir- who knows? Thank you. Who could knows you what tell Prop Thirteen what is? Prop Thirteen is. Prop Thirteen. God, I, I'm so sorry. See, You're not in you started it. You did that. You started up. Prop this. Prop that. Right. Well, he asked a very California question. We'll, we'll just quick. Yeah, we'll just quickly say, uh, Prop Thirteen is a rule that basically says your property taxes never go up. I should say I'm a Prop Thirteen beneficiary, but anyway. Um, uh, but no, I mean, I'm not saying that, that makes a good po- I'm just saying, right. So I, I don't know what to say other than it's very popular. It ain't going away. There's no way to make it go away other than a full vote. The legislator can't even touch it. It's just something we have to live with. I don't know. I, 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 there, there is a challenge to half of it this year. It looks like it's popular. We'll see where that goes. And that's all. I, I just feel like I, we have to live with it. I don't know what to say about it other than we have to live with it. You had a second part of your question. Yeah. Did he answer it? A little, a, a little. It's a little shorter. Is this one yeah. about a uh, referendum instead of a proposition? Or <laughs> no, this one is Seattle specific. Um, on my block, there's there's two current uh, early design reviews for large buildings in a predominantly single family zone, and all of the public comment 
whether you're low income, high income, everyone is complaining about parking. So my question to you both is, how do you address the question of, of parking? I don't. Alan, can you send him a paper on that? I don't, I don't, have, I don't have a good answer for that, sorry. Did you, did you tell any parking politics stories in the book? I'm trying to remember. I no. had someone's, anyway. Not really. Are we going into parking now? Yeah. It's important, but. Yeah, so um, I'll succeed when I find, when I, when I get him to write a book about parking policy. <laughs> there is a great book called The High Cost of Free Parking. Right, but I feel like all not, the answers are there. It's Right, but it's, you know, it's this thick and it's all papers. And we, we need someone that popularizes the tale and tells human stories about, about parking. Um, uh, parking is the Achilles heel of um, the automobile, and it is the... Um, it is the secret. It is one of the secret uh, cost elevators uh, of housing, and um, uh, it's uh, so. Um, <clears throat> for the reason that you just identified, uh, because people are accustomed to having access to free parking provided by everyone else on the street in their neighborhoods, um, worth thousands of dollars a year, um, and uh, and don't think of it that way. Right, so we have an enormous political problem because perceptions are reality. No, there are there are absolutely strategies for uh, for parking reform. We've actually been fairly successful in Seattle of reducing the off-street parking requirements in new development. In um, Sightline's been deeply involved in all of those things. Again, get your get your name on the sign-up list if you're not already. In the city of Portland, we we hope by um, the end of April to have eliminated off-street parking requirements in for all multifamily housing everywhere in the city. Um, in Seattle, we've already got that in big sections of the city. So, and we're, we're, we're working now on, on state legislation, um, which passed the state Senate last week, or was it the week before? Margaret? Last week. Last week? Uh, state Senate passed leg legislation last week, which for the first time would um, say that localities cannot require off-street parking for accessory dwelling units, at least within a certain amount of proximity to transit. Um, so we, we are moving forward on that, but it's a, it is a completely incremental process, plan by plan, policy by policy, and so on. And, uh, and the, key to it is, um, the key to it is electing uh, people, who under, who, people, people who are um, amenable to the message is um, that housing, is, housing people is more important than housing cars, um, and then are, are connected to people like those of you in this room who will help them understand the, the consequences of the parking policies that are before them. Uh, next question, please. Someone on this side? Is there a backstory to the headline that ran in your New York Times excerpt? You know what? There is definitely a backstory. You're asking why we ran a headline that said build 14 times. Is that, is that your question? Uh, uh, yes, the same one tweeted by the president. Yes. Um, the backstory, uh, well, I, have, I don't have the full backstory. I have this much. I was working on that story, you know, in the back end of the, of the you know, basically pre-publication. And it said build, 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 build. And I just assumed it was dummy copy, which means they'll fill it in later. And just uh, to, to the last minute, I was like, oh, this is dummy copy. This is dummy copy. And then it published, and I was like, what, what the hell is this? Like, I, and I thought it was like a mistake. I, 
I, the editor just decided to go for it. And the hilarious part is, the New York Times recently studied uh, about a year or two ago A/B testing headlines. So they, which means that they will try two different headlines and see which one uh, is. I'm trying to find a way to say doesn't to say gets the most clicks without saying gets the most clicks. But anyway, so they look for the, the most headline. Readers. Anyway, the headline that performs the best and uh, and is the most informative to engaging to. Anyway, so and I was looking at the A/B test and the headlines, and one of them was build 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 ten times, and then they changed it to fourteen times, and and I was like, oh, that's, uh, I wonder which one performed. Anyway, so that's the story. Thank you. I have an editor who is playful and even more playful than me. And it's really fun in life when your boss is kind of more dangerous than you are. Uh, it's, it's really fun. And actually, it's actually a lovely experience if you've ever had that. So, Thank right, you very we, much. We're going to take two more questions. And here's what I'm thinking. I see a lot of people who present as male lined up. I would like one of those questions to be asked by someone who presents as female, at least. If not two. So we'll go here to this question and then. Okay. Hmm? Okay, it seems like um, um, every, every growing city in the, uh, uh, in the U.S. is experiencing a housing crisis. Um, and uh, so are there, though, any hopeful examples of any place anywhere in the world in this modern era that has somehow created affordable housing for medium, uh, median income earners. So there are obviously lots of places like Singapore and, uh, I mean, I'm obviously, but I've not been to Singapore, but I meant there are places that uh, do a good job housing people, have large public housing programs, things like that. Um, so there are places that do that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> In America, as much as it pains precious people from Seattle and San Francisco to hear this, places like Phoenix and Houston do a very good job. Uh, it may not be... I think, though, if, if you Google Houston housing crisis, they will think that they are currently in a housing crisis. Totally agree, but it's not... They do not have anywhere near the homelessness. Yeah. Uh, they, um, Their neighborhoods do change. They do have a lot of sprawl, but their neighborhoods also change a lot. Like, I mean, you can go to a neighborhood and you're like, holy shit, they... I mean, they, they, they do... Uh, outside of some, like, obviously, like, don't touch them neighborhoods, they do seem to actually reform themselves and build more densely even in the same place. It's wild. Um, so I, I, I sometimes tell people, whatever the future of America is, it's living in Houston, Phoenix, and Atlanta and places like that. I mean, that's where they have a true middle class. That's where people are moving. You see people moving there all the time. That's where people show up uh, feeling like they can get a toehold in the things that they want. Uh, if they, you know, without being kind of equipped already. So actually, as much as people in kind of denser, more liberal cities sometimes abhor the development model of those cities, and they're not particularly conservative, I mean, they're they're, uh, the actual cities, there is a lot to learn from that. And just shutting it down because you think it's, oh, that's sprawl, that's not us, is the wrong response. Uh, that's my I was just in Phoenix and it was amazing I mean people had so much optimism so much energy and it's hard not to ask yourself why do they have that so uh, Sightline did an article um, 
is it two years ago now, two and a half years ago, called Yes, You Can Build a Way to Affordable Housing, which is a, a list of seven or nine places around the world that have done a good job of building abundant housing. The examples that Connor gave are included, but the question is, can we do that without sprawling across an area the size of the state of Connecticut, as in the case of Houston? Um, and that's the challenge that we're, we have for ourselves. Can we grow up? Can we make it as easy to build housing and abundant, an abundance of housing while growing upwards in transit-oriented communities rather than sprawling across the landscape? Last question, over here. I live in one of the last two mobile home parks in Seattle, and um, it seems to me from, I don't know, I've been living in my space for uh, 32 years, and I've been living in mobile home parks in North Seattle for the last uh, 40 years. I got pushed out of two mobile home parks in the 80s uh, because of development, and uh, after that, all the other parks have gone out except for us two parks, and we're right next to each other. One's a senior park. Anyway, uh, it seems to me, and from my looking at things, don't you think that the problem really is uh, we don't seem to have a problem paying for missiles and the military budget? I mean, you know, I think the answers are pretty obvious. I mean, we have the money. It's just, you know, maybe vote for Bernie. I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you're going to get a, 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 a rise. But, you know, the inequality in our, in our society, uh, and, uh, you know, we do have, I mean, the military budget, I mean, it's just, it seems to me it's, we spend a lot of money on the military. I think a lot of people agree with what you're saying, and the question always becomes, if you're going to try to affect things, where you try to put that energy. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book is show the importance of local energy and people who decide to put their time into their local government, which is, which is not going to change the defense budget. And, uh, and even though the people who are in that activism might, be, might share all your frustrations about the defense budget and the priorities encoded within it, they've decided that they're going to focus their time and activism on the local governments. And what I thought was so important about that is that even though this book is largely about one place, though there's a lot about other places in this sort of... It is about how we've created a housing problem, uh, how, how the, the, many of the answers to solving our housing problem, although we are probably going to need a giant federal program, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to say that other than to say, like, we should do that, and then that's, that sentence is over. Like, I can't show that in the same way. Um, but um, so I, I understand your frustrations. I think a lot of people in this room share them. But when people decide where they're going to put their focus, a lot of the people in this book have just decided, even if they're so frustrated about those things, that they're going to put it into, say, saving a local uh, a trailer park uh, or mobile home park. Uh, or, yeah, I mean, it is obviously one of the few kinds of very affordable housing we have left. We should be preserving it, not destroying it. Um, and, uh, and I will just end on this note, which is that if this book is a celebration of anything, it's... Um, people who show up, and even if they sometimes hate each other, they are the people who show up. And what's amazing to me, especially just looking at the relatively small size of this crowd, uh, that, um, I mean, it's a lovely and impressive crowd, but I just met not many people go listen to people talk about books. Uh, and, um, and people who show up are, they almost have more in common, even if they hate each other, they have more in common with each other than anybody else, because apathy is the real enemy, you know? And that's the... And so if there's anything this book is about, it's your local government is startlingly accessible to you. If you just show up like a little bit, they will listen to you to the point at which you're like, why are you listening to me? Like, uh, and, it's, and it's wonderful to see people be able to access their democracy in that way because 
the things in Washington, D.C. do seem so professionalized and distant. It's not to say it's not important. And I think that the return on your time is so high in your own community. And I just uh, hope that this book makes people 